Today's reading is coming from Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Thank you, Heather. Good morning. My name is Josh Davidson. I'm the youth director here, and uh, I have the privilege to open up God's Word for us this morning. Pastor Kevin is uh, catching some UV rays in Florida right now with his family, so uh, they're enjoying a nice, needed vacation. And um, Dan Morris was actually supposed to speak this morning, uh, but he ended up getting sick, so I got the, the call last minute to fill in. And so our passage this morning is from Galatians chapter 4. And today I want to talk to you guys about the idol of religion, the idol of religion. You see, the passage that Heather just, wrote, just read, um, it's interesting because Paul is concerned. Paul is concerned for a few different reasons. Because the Galatian church, they're turning back to worthless idols. They're becoming enslaved again. They have forsaken Paul's truth, and they've turned to leaders other than Christ. See, this has been a concern of Paul's from the beginning of his letter to the Galatian church. It actually tells us in Galatians 1 verse 6 that Paul is actually astonished or amazed that the, gospel, that the Galatians are so quickly turning away from the one who has called them by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. It's really interesting. If you read the, the book of Galatians, the tone in which Paul uses is so different from his other letters. He's actually really emotional. And, he, and he's fired up because there's a false gospel that has been brought into the church. And normally he'd be spending time in Thanksgiving in his letters after his initial greeting, but, but he's astonished, it says in, in chapter 1. And like I said, the reason he's so upset is because these young Christians in Galatians They've been taking a hold of a different gospel. Paul came into the church of Galatians and he established that it is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, equals belonging, equals acceptance. And these false teachers, these Judaizers, have come in and they said, nope, we actually think salvation is Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus Jewish rituals, Jesus plus Jewish ceremonies and law. That's what equals salvation. 
And so Paul is, he's fired up because he has to defend the gospel and protect the gospel that he brought in to this Galatian church. And I love what he does, and I'm just kind of setting up the context for you guys before we go in this morning, but Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, I love actually what it says, and I want you guys to see this on the screen. It says, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You see, Paul had to establish his authority that came from Jesus Christ. These teachers were coming in, they were bringing a completely different message. And Paul was saying, no, my authority... It's not from man. It's not by man. It's from Jesus Christ. I have been commissioned by Jesus to bring you this message and to bring you this gospel. So it's so important for Paul to establish that as he's writing this this letter to the Galatian church. So this leads us to our passage this morning, which was read by Heather in Galatians 4. And I'm not sure if you guys caught this, but in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 4, it says this. My little children, my dear children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's interesting language here. Paul actually is using motherly-like language in these verses. Any good parent has a desire for their children to be well-off, don't they? Any good parent wants the well-being of their kid at, at all costs. You know, I think about the special connection that moms have with their babies. I think about the special connection that my wife has with our son Paxton. I mean, they are bonded together. It's so special to see. I mean, my son spent nine months in my wife's womb, right? They have this one flesh, wonderful connection. Any mom out there knows this, the beautiful connection that you have with your kid. And, and it's interesting because when, when your kid is hurting or your kid is crying, moms feel that so deeply. They want the best for their kid. They don't want their kid to be crying. And it's not that I'm being insensitive as a dad and not feeling those things for my kid, but moms have that just special innate connection to feel the hurt, to feel the pain, to want just the, the utmost well-being for their child. And Paul here, he has this motherly-like concern because his people, the people he's discipled, they're turning back to worthless idols. And these idols are enslaving them. I read a story this past week in a commentary that I was studying for my message by a guy named J.V. Fesco. And he shared in his commentary on Galatians that Uh, And this story was just too great not to share. And he was talking about the torturous existence of downed American pilots living in the infamous Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War. Has anybody ever heard of the story of the Hanoi Hilton uh, in the Vietnam War? Yeah, a couple of you guys. Well, a number of these airmen spent years as prisoners of war enduring excruciating conditions like starvation, Uh, torture and just terrible living conditions. One survivor of the Hanoi Hilton shared how he used to be tied to these ropes and they would actually use 15-pound leg irons to strap them down, him and his men, and which would cause lacerations, they'd cause infections. And the floors were disgusting in which they stayed. There'd be rats, there'd be cockroaches everywhere. Well, it was interesting. A a peace was finally negotiated, and these men returned to the United States. The documentary that 
there's a documentary out there that this man watched, and he, he recounted how the former prisoners were actually were given medical attention, they were bathed, and they were given new clothes. And when they were first delivered from the Hanoi Hilton, they ended up flying into their initial destination in the Philippines. And they were b- brought to this on-base cafeteria in the Philippines, and they were told that they could eat whatever and how much they wanted because they were, they were free now. And this one guy ended up sharing how he ordered a steak, he ordered a dozen eggs, and he ordered French toast because he was so hungry. To say the least, these prisoners were absolutely elated that they were freed from captivity. What if, however, you discovered that these former prisoners wanted to go back to the Hanoi Hilton? Well, that'd be nuts, right? That'd be absolutely insane. What if they told their superiors, I want to return back to captivity at the Hanoi Hilton? People would think they were absolutely crazy, right? And this is what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 4. You guys used to be enslaved to pagan idols and other gods. You came to Christ, and now you're turning to the law. You're becoming enslaved to the law, and it's like you're returning to that old lifestyle before Christ, being enslaved to other idols and gods. And I want to read this for us because I I want you guys to catch what he's saying here in chapter 4, verse 8. Check this out. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. And I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Again, Paul is saying in this passage, you were enslaved to these pagan idols and gods. When we think about an idol, we think about those big golden statues, right? that people would bow down to and make sacrifices to. But now that you're, in, you're a Christian, why in the world are you becoming enslaved to the law, to these Jewish rituals? Why are you adding to the salvation that I told you was Jesus plus nothing equals belonging and acceptance? You're adding all these Jewish laws and circumcision and rituals to this. And you're enslaving yourself. Christ has freed you from the law. You have been made right By God, through faith in Jesus Christ, you're not made right by perfectly keeping the law because nobody can do that. Only Jesus Christ can. And so Paul is, he's hurting. And you you get that sense as you read this that Paul is, is hurting for his dear friends, the Galatians, because they've allowed these false teachers, they've allowed these Judaizers to come into the church and feed them a message contrary to the one that he brought in. The Galatians exchanged the message of grace. They exchanged the love of God. They exchanged the approval of God through faith for a lifestyle of performance, for a lifestyle of trying to constantly earn God's approval through their works, constantly feeling pressure in order to measure up before God. And this is why Paul is so distressed He's so emotional for his friends at the Galatian church. And like I mentioned earlier in my title, there's there's a certain idol that they were turning to. And that idol is the idol of religion. 
Do you understand what I'm saying when I say the idol of religion? What in the world do you, do you mean by that? Maybe some of you guys are thinking out there. Let me, let me explain. An idol is something that we try to find fulfillment in other than God. And the Galatians were worshiping these small g gods, these idols, to find satisfaction and fulfillment. And before Christ, when they were pursuing these actual pagan gods and idols, they weren't seeking after God. They didn't care about God. They didn't care about his law. He wasn't even on their radar because they were living in rebellion towards God. People worship what they think will give them fulfillment. But now, these false teachers that have infiltrated the church are urging the Galatians to adopt all the Old Testament Mosaic law in order to be justified and pleasing to God. And you can read about this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, where Paul says, We are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. You are not accepted before God just by following the law. See, guys, the entire point of the law was to show us that we could never keep the law. When we look at the law, it's like a mirror. And we look at this law and we say, wow, we are actually lawbreakers. I cannot keep this. We can't be the solution to our problem. We need someone who could keep this perfectly. And that is Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill the law. He came and lived the life that we never could. This has me really fired up this past week because in my study, if you go back and you looked at chapter 3 in Galatians, you'll see that Paul appeals to the fact that Abraham, by faith, believed in the promise. So if you guys go all the way back to Genesis, you guys know the story of Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham that he would bless him, that he would bless his family, that he would give him land, that he would give him a son. God made this covenant, he made this promise to Abraham, and it tells us in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is really, really important for us to understand in light of this conversation. God gave Abraham a promise, and he believed by faith in that promise. He didn't have to do any, any of these works to be credited to him righteousness. And Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, ends up talking about how it was actually 430 years after Abraham believed that the law of Moses was given. This is so significant because it was belief first in the promises of God, and then I'm going to give the law. And unfortunately, these false teachers in the Galatian church were coming in and they were thinking, Hmm, I wonder, because, if, because God gave the Mosaic Law 430 years after Abraham, I wonder if God is changing his mind about the plan of salvation. I wonder if God now is expecting us that it's actually belief in him, but we have to do, this, do the law. We have to be, be full of the law and, and follow it perfectly in order to be justified, in order to have approval. And Paul is... He's fighting for this in this book. That it's faith in Jesus. It is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Equals belonging and equals acceptance. Tim Keller tells us that whatever we worship, we often become enslaved to. See, when you take something like the law of Moses, 
the Ten Commandments, or you take circumcision, or you take even having really good biblical morals, even if they come from the Bible, <laughs> right? And you use those things to make you feel worthy, to make you feel accepted before God, that's actually enslaving you. They can become your master and you can become a slave to it. A perfect example of what I'm talking about actually comes from Jesus in, in Luke chapter 15. See, what happens in Luke chapter 15 is we have the story of the prodigal son. We have the two sons, right? We have a very immoral younger son who wanted the father's wealth. And what does he do? He takes the father's wealth and he goes and he squanders all of it. He goes parties. He, he, he completely screws up his life. And he's left to the end of himself. And then you have an older brother who's full of morality. He, he's obedient to his dad. He, he does all the right things from the outside. And what happens at the end of the story? One son, the younger son, who actually messed up his life, comes and repents and, and is embraced by the father. While you have the, the moral, the good son, who's actually alienated from the father's heart because he's full of self-righteousness. He's full of morality. But that actually didn't make him close to the Father. Tim Keller says this. He says, If anything, the idolatry and slavery of religion is actually more dangerous than the idolatry and slavery of irreligion because it is less obvious. The irreligious person knows that he is far away from God, but the religious person does not. This is why Paul is in fear for the Galatians. It tells us in verse 10 of chapter 4 that they're taking on special days and months and seasons and years. They're literally religiously observing all the festivals, all the ceremonies of the Old Testament. And this new slavery to non-gods would actually be worse than the old. They would not know that they were actually far away from the Father's heart. My question for all of you this morning is, why are we? Why are you? Why are we? Why, why are we turning back to enslavement in our life when we've experienced freedom in Christ? Why are you turning towards the idol of religiosity when you've been freed from that? We have got to stop trying to earn God's approval and his love based on our performance. And it's so hard because performance is just ingrained into our culture, isn't it? You got to build your platform. You got to, in order to succeed, you got to perform. Otherwise, you're going to get a bad review or you might get fired. <laughs> it can be so easy to fall into this religious performance mentality as believers that, that we think, okay, I, I was seven for seven this week on my devotions. I served the poor this week. I went to church. And now I'm in good standing with God. And his love for me is at an all-time high right now because I did these things for God. <laughs> and then we get in this mentality when, when we sin and we don't spend time with him, we start to become insecure. And we start to feel like his love for us is, is less. And, and all of a sudden we have to start doing more things for him in order to get on his good side again. In order for him to love us more. Paul is saying, be freed from that mentality. Be freed from it. You 
are already accepted in Christ. You know, I was thinking too this week how we get so accustomed in culture to, to these different groups that we're around. And these, these groups that we hang around, they have these certain identity markers to them. And if you don't follow these identity markers, you, you can often be excluded from these groups. So, for example, I, I read an article this, uh, a couple weeks ago about um, a sorority on a college campus, how when they were accepting freshmen into their sorority, they were excluding freshmen on the very first day if they didn't have the right type of shoes. They said, you're out if you don't have these shoes. Another example of this could be like Southern culture. I lived in Georgia for two summers, and, and Southern culture is a real thing. You know, you got to drink your sweet tea. You got to have your biscuits and gravy. You got to wear your Patagonia and Vineyard Vines. And if you don't fit in and wear those things, you're out. You fill in the blank with these groups that we have around us. Maybe it's the wealthy group. If you don't have the big house, X amount of money, you're not a part of the special club. All these groups are doing is, it's about doing the right thing or having the right thing in order to be accepted and to measure up. And I fear that this mentality bleeds into our view of God and into our relationship with God. Folks, in Christ, you already have a seat at the table. Folks, in Christ, you are approved. In Christ, you belong. You don't have to prove anything anymore. Jesus proved it for you. He performed for you. He kept the law perfectly for you. And I love what Paul does in this passage. Because in verse 9 of chapter 4, he goes back to what a right relationship with God looks like in light of this entire conversation. I want to read verse 9 for us this morning. It says this, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? Now I want to focus really quickly on that first half of the verse. It says, But now that you have come to know God, what he's saying is when you accept Christ as your Savior, you come into a personal relationship with God. You begin to know God. But what separates Christianity from any other religion is that we have this personal, transcendent God who knows us. See, it's not about the amount of intellectual things that you know about God that makes you a Christian. And it's not about the strength of your love for him that makes you a Christian. He sent his son to die for you. He saw you in your sin. He saw you in your junk. And he saved you out of that. He did the saving. You didn't. He saw the mess. He saw the junk that we have, and he still wanted you. What Paul is saying here is this. We're going to have seasons. We're going to have days when we aren't pursuing God and trying to get to know him, and our love for him is going to fluctuate, and our passion for him is going to fluctuate. We're going to have seasons where we're feeling really connected with God, and seasons of feeling away from him. But you know who never changes his fixation on you and his love for you, and that is our God. He doesn't change based on your performance or your behavior. And I love what Paul did in that verse because he said, it's not that, it's, it's if you know God, 
right? But then he goes, rather, actually, it's God's knowing of you. And, and that word rather, actually, I read in some commentaries this week that that word rather can actually be translated more importantly. You know, it's like, oh, it, it's your knowledge of God. Okay, that's good. But more importantly, it's about God's knowing of you. And that's what we have to keep in mind because that's what the gospel is all about. Richard Lovelace says this, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves us and accepts us in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity often shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy and jealousy and other sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. So it is our insecurity regarding our acceptance with God, which is why we end up making religion an idol. We look at our knowing of God, which fluctuates. Our love for God, which fluctuates. We have good days. We have bad days. There's sometimes we go through seasons of not even pursuing after God, right? But Paul reminds us that the gospel shows us that we don't have to make ourselves more beautiful or more lovable before God. He already knows us. And if this is the case, we don't need to make an idol out of other people's approval or even our own self-approval. Folks, you are already enough in Christ. You are already approved. You have a seat at the table. You are justified. You belong to Christ. Let's stop going back to enslavement. You are free. And what happens in all of this, when this beautiful truth grips our heart, what happens? We move from doing things for God in a sense of it being a duty, and it moves from duty to delight. It moves from duty to delight. I have a quote that I want to share. It says this, One of the most liberating discoveries of my life has been that coming to find that God does not pursue his people through coercion, but by winning us from the heart. Isn't that so true? God wins us from the heart. And when he wins us from the heart, we can't help but want to pursue intimacy with him. We can't help but want to delight in him, to follow his commands. Because it's just, God, I, I can't believe this grace. I can't believe how radical this gospel message is. It's so different than what these groups are telling me. It's so different than what the world is telling me about performance. God, you know me. You still want me. You love me even when I fail. Your love for me didn't fluctuate today. Even though I had an absolutely hot mess of a day, right? We don't do things out of compulsion, but because we are willing because he has captivated and captured our hearts. Amazing, amazing things happen when we truly delight in him and delight in his word. So Paul reminds us that the central basis for Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but rather how unshakable his heart is set on you. You know, I see in our youth group in particular, so many teenagers struggling with assurance of their faith. And I know that it's not just 
teenagers that are struggling with this. I'm sure there's people in this room right now that they're, they're struggling. They're enslaved by the idol of religion, which is causing them to be insecure and causing them to doubt their faith. And we need the promises of God. We need reminders that there is no condemnation for those that are in Jesus. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. That you have been sealed by the Spirit. That you belong if you are in Christ. That you are accepted. That you have a seat at the table. And nothing can separate you from that. It is no longer about your performance. Jesus performed for you. What happens when we grasp that we are known by God is that we don't have to seek the idol of religion any longer. We won't worship any other idol because we love God so much, the one who knows us. I read this really cool story this past week of Hudson Taylor, the 19th century missionary, who had a scrap of paper which he would move in his diary each day. So whatever else he was doing in the day, he would always read this in his diary. And it said this, Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision, keen than any outward objects seem, more dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. (laughs) See, when we enjoy Christ, the idols of religion and performance are swept away. We begin to see Jesus as our bright reality. The things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. As we close this morning, I'd like to to invite the band to come on up. I love what Paul ends up doing in this passage in Galatians 4 in verse 19. And this is what I want to read to you guys as we close. Again, This motherly concern. My little children, for whom I am, again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Oh, that Christ would be formed in you. And as he's writing this, I can't help but think that he probably has in his mind what he just wrote in Galatians 2.20. That is, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live by, the son, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, that Christ would be formed in you, in all of this. Shouldn't that be our prayer? That we would die to ourself, that we would die to our impulse of religiosity that we constantly fall into to earn God's approval and try to, try to belong. May we die to that. Let's die to that this morning and find freedom in Jesus. And as we live by faith in the Son, oh, that Christ would be formed in you, that he would shape you and he would mold you into his image. I want to encourage you guys just to bow your heads and, and close your eyes with me. I, normally know, I know we normally don't do something like this, but I just feel compelled just to, to ask, maybe by even just show of hands today, 
How many of you guys would be willing to just slip up your hand and say, Josh, I, I could use some prayer because I, I've been enslaved by the idol of religion lately. I, I've been trying to earn God's approval. I've been trying to constantly belong and perform, and I, I need to be freed up this morning. If you fall into that category, would you mind just slipping your hand this morning? Folks, I want to encourage you to repent and turn. Turn from that and be freed this morning in Jesus. That beautiful truth that you are justified and that you are approved. And second, I want to just ask if, if there's anyone out there that, that wants to have a, a right relationship with God, that you're hearing this this morning, and I, I want to know that Jesus as my Savior Scripture tells us that to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe in his finished work. Believe in the life that he lived that we never could, that he rose again. That's what it takes to believe in the gospel. It's as simple as that, a childlike faith. If you'd like to talk to one of us leaders here this morning about knowing more about Jesus, please. Come see me afterward. Come see one of our elders or leaders. We'd love to share with you about Jesus Christ. As we worship this morning and as we close out our morning, we're going to sing, His Mercy is More. And it's so appropriate in light of this morning's message. Aren't you thankful that His grace and His mercy goes to the uttermost even when we continue to sin and fail. I want to encourage us to, to stand and let's respond and let's worship through this last song together.